0: Women typically uh, record a much stronger motivation to control prejudice than men. It's also highly related to education. The more extreme the radical right is, the more likely the gender gap is to be accounted for by this motivation to control prejudice measure.
1: Welcome to a history of xenophobia, from the gold mines to the rise of the far right today. My name is Ariel Glynn, and I'm the host of this History Hope podcast series. History Hope is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie. Elizabeth ivers is a professor in political science at the University of Bergen in Norway. She specializes in the study of public opinion and political parties. Much of her research, teaching and writing examines far-right parties and their voters, as we will be hearing today. She has developed significant new theoretical and methodological insights that explain why far-right parties succeed or fail to attract support, particularly in Western Europe. And of particular interest to the podcast today is why women tend to vote less frequently for anti-immigration parties than male. So Elizabeth, thanks so much for agreeing to participate in this podcast today. You have, as I said in the intro there, been writing about radical right parties, far right, anti-immigrant parties, nativist parties, this kind of broad church Of parties for a long time now. Maybe to start with, you've written about the centrality of immigration for these parties. You know, there are other things that these parties are sometimes associated with, such as grievances arising from economic changes, our political elitism and corruption. But you uh, have written in the past that the only thing that really seems to unite all these parties across various areas is immigration. Why is this the case, do you think?
0: It's a good question. And, and and what you could say that I think what unites them is nativism. So uh, a particular way to react to immigration, basically. Uh, if you think about it in, in sort of historical terms, we really start to see the rise of uh, this wave of far-right mobilization. It differs a bit in different countries, but, but we see it, From the early 80s, really picking up across a number of countries and then growing gradually, gradually, gradually uh, up until our time. And the number of countries that see a rise of the far right and the uh, size of their support and so forth gradually grows on averages. But then, of course, as with elections and parties, there's lots of other factors that come into play. But this is the main trend that you see. And so it's natural i think to see this development uh, in conjunction with other societal developments that have happened uh, you know in this period of time and and many things have happened basically a lot of things have happened but when we what turns out when we look uh, in more detail at the the data the only thing that is very consistently related with at the individual level with voters decision to vote for the far right is that they have a, a nativist view of questions related to immigration and that they uh, those who do vote for the far right and that they have a tendency to attach a lot of importance to that issue so they think that not only are they skeptical of immigration and of foreigners and stuff that is foreign but they're also uh, they also think that immigrants immigration ideas and people who are foreign to some extent are responsible for problems societal problems uh, that happen uh, and 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 it's it's turned out to be a very versatile argument so so a lot of people think that you know immigrants can be the cause of unemployment uh, that immigrants uh, can be the cause of deterioration of a local community somehow that uh, immigrants can be uh, the cause of longer lines for health services has been thought and that it, to the extent that this world that we live in now feels different and maybe with higher pace and harder to feel at home in than the world that used to be maybe 30, 40 years ago but that is also somehow uh, caused by immigration and, and by implication then these uh, voters of the far right tend to think that Well, if we only manage to limit immigration very strongly, then a lot of the problems that we're experiencing today will become uh, taken care of. And so that's really what distinguishes people who vote for the far right from people who never vote. So most people never vote for the far right. (laughs) So even if these parties have risen to prominence, it's important to keep in mind, especially since they often try to pose as the majority uh, of, you know, the people in a country, that uh, they're not the majority of the people in the country and um, who who thinks in this way. But there is a group of people in all of the countries that I've studied in Western Europe who think this way. And um, uh, and quite a few of them have been mobilized by,
1: by the far right. Yeah, I think the fact that the vast majority of people do not Vote for these parties is often forgotten. You know, that 80, 85%, 90% of the electorates do not vote for these parties is often neglected. But as you say, there has been a considerable rise since the 80s, though. So that is what captures people's attention. Um, but you, you also highlight in your work how not all these kind of parties succeed. Indeed, a huge proportion of them actually fail. And what one of the Explanations you put forward for why some uh, succeed and some fail is the notion of reputational shields. So, could you tell us wh- what are these reputational shields?
0: Yeah, this is something uh, a concept that I came up with actually when I wrote my PhD at Oxford uh, a while back in two thousand four or five, I think it was something like that. And at that point in time, I'd set my mind to collect all the information about every single party that had adopted an anti-immigrant stance because of course we tend to notice the ones that succeed and attract attention as you just mentioned and my what i set out to do was to collect information from starting from the 1980 until whatever year it was that i collected the data to find out all the parties that had tried to stand for election And had advocated as a central piece of their uh, agenda, political agenda, uh, nativism as a position against uh, immigration. And it turned out, so I collected there were um, some, I can't remember, 40, 45, something like that, that order of magnitude. And of course, out of these, a small share at that point in time, I think it was seven or eight, had really, you know, been what we would call electorally successful. So that means, you know, a lot of them hadn't. And then I set out to find out what was it that distinguished the ones that had become electorally successful, had broken through, and the ones who had not. And what was fascinating was uh, the extent to which on the side of those who had risen electorally was a group of parties, most of them weren't new and hadn't been established for the purpose of fighting immigration typically they had been formed around some other agenda that maybe had petered out a bit or become less sort of attractive to voters for some reason at some point. And then they had gravitated towards the uh, opposition to immigration as, as an agenda. So, so that was the first observation that I made. And and we can, we can, since we're talking, we can talk some in detail about these parties, right? So, um, for instance, if you think about uh, the Scandinavian uh, far right, where uh, I live in Denmark and Norway were the two first countries to have a considerable far right party here. And, they, um, and the, both of those started as anti-tax uh, kind of pugilist, uh movements where uh, they really try to mobilize uh, on that. And then only later, maybe 10, 15, almost 20 years later, did they really turn against immigration so maybe some of the tenants had always been there but it had not really been a a big and major issue in their agenda so they started out as one thing like a a typical radical right uh, anti-tax party and then turned uh anti-immigrant and uh, what we saw in for instance uh switzerland and then later in uh in finland was that parties that originally had started as agrarian parties, so uh, speaking for the interests of farmers and the people living in rural uh, conditions, um, they had, had, and these are some of the oldest parties that we have, so they go date back, you know, to the beginning of the 1900s and uh, even earlier in some, uh, these are not new parties, but that they, at some point uh, in in Switzerland in the late 90s and Finland uh, in early 2000s, uh, turn... To, to the nativist agenda focusing on immigration the EU and so forth. That's another example. We also have these parties that started as regional independence movements or regional maybe power assertion movements. So the Lega Nord in Italy or Vlaams, uh, at that point they're called Vlaams Bloc in, in, in Flanders in Belgium. So these are parties in the richest regions of their respective countries that immobilized you know because they thought that too much of the resources generated in the regions where they lived were going to poorer regions uh, in the south in both countries in fact um uh, and and they wanted to have more power, more independence and more of the resources that they gained. And these, they started out like that, and then quite quickly, but not immediately, turned uh, towards the nativist uh, agenda and and started opposing uh, immigration. And there's more to be said to that, those party stories are complicated, but that's it. And it's not so different, actually, with if you think about UKIP and um, Alternative für Deutschland. Or alternative for Deutschland because they started out really opposing the EU, which is not exactly, it might be seen as a nativist agenda, but you know, it's more than that. Um, And then um, uh, turn uh, against immigrants only after. Um, So it's not the reason why they're formed. So if you think about all these examples, and then those are all considered very highly. You know, successful in some way or other. You know, um, by by the metric you measure them on their own or for, by what they try to achieve, and um, and uh, but, but what we saw is that the parties that didn't make it, they were typically either coming straight out of the extreme right milieus, so those types of parties that had very clear linkages to fascism or Nazism, organizationally, symbolically, ideologically they had a hard time, even if they really tried <laughs> to mobilize voters on, the, on this issue. So that was one uh, thing we saw. And the other thing we saw was that parties, even if they were new, that had started just for the purpose of uh, opposing immigration, but no other thing going on uh, in the in the agenda also had a harder time. So there were examples of parties starting like that, 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 that didn't make it. Maybe Front National is an example of that in France, um, debating that. Um, so, uh, um, but uh, so it's not that it's not possible. It's just not very common. Um, and so that was this uh, uh, from that emerged the idea just from the sheer sort of number of different political uh, uh, orientations that these parties that all converged on the nativist agenda came from was this idea that it doesn't so much matter what the previous political agenda was, but it seemed to matter that there had been a previous agenda. And from this came uh, this idea of the reputational shield um, because it it also related to how um, I analyzed how these parties uh, came into conflict in all of these countries about their immigration policies and how they used their um, uh, reputations as having started at something else to say, we're not right-wing extremists. In fact, we're uh, parties that started as agrarian interest organizations or tax protest parties. So we're not. In every country, there's this idea that the far right in the other countries is really bad, but that their far right party is somewhat better. So, uh, and and because of these kinds of things. And, and the funny thing for me as a comparative uh, political scientist who look at these trends in all the countries is how similar these ideas about how they're special are across countries. And so that from that observation emerges notion that maybe this reputational shield somehow at this historical point in time is uh, important some, somehow. We can talk more about why for uh, mobilization of the anti-immigrant vote in uh, in
1: Europe today. So th- so people's image of a party is hugely salient. You know, that if they associated with fascism or some kind of fascist roots, this is very negative connotations. So people are stopping themselves uh, at a certain level already. And I think this leads us on to uh, what a lot of our discussion will uh, focus on, is um, why women don't vote for the radical right in the same kind of numbers as males. And you wrote in 2016 an article with Elko Hartfelt about this topic. And um, you you sought to explain the so-called gender gap on voting for anti-immigration parties. But first, before we get to explaining why um, males tend to vote for these parties more so than females, you point out in that article, the two of you, that the, the term gender gap isn't the most appropriate one to use, but you still reluctantly use it because of its presence in the literature. But, but could you tell us the difference maybe between the sex gap and the gender gap?
0: Yeah, so so typically um, we use the word gender about uh, gender identities as more culturally or socially defined. So you say that somebody's male or female, whereas uh, you use uh, the uh, the term sex about somebody's more biologically defined um, sex. So that's whether they're a man or a woman. And uh, when we, the data that we rely on, um, typically either ask people, are you a man or a woman? Uh, or... Um, they uh, they actually have this information already from population registers, so survey survey data. So what we have information on, we think, most of the time, are people's sex. So um, more or less is biologically defined, and and um, but to the extent that they have been asked, you know, what uh, what gender are you? That also sometimes happens in surveys, and nowadays it's becoming much more of a uh, sort of updated <laughs> approach to these things, but that the data that we had to rely on was pre-collected uh, in this way. So, um, so that's why we had this discussion as to whether we should talk about the gender gap or the sex gap. And and we think that uh, in, although the data we have are on people's sex rather than their gender identity, that the um, explanations we advance relate to people's gender so their gender identities so after a lot of back and forth and a long footnote and so forth uh, that's where we uh, end up but um it's yeah an important discussion that should be had yeah
1: yeah and i think there's a lot of scope for further research on the explaining this gender aspect you know as as you state in the article the reason why you think sex gap is perhaps uh more accurate is because that's the data you have on whereas the gender aspect is is there and it's part of the explanation but you don't yet have definitive kind of data on this but that's why it would be fascinating for other people to to go forward and to go further with this um so yeah just to point out maybe to people that i i think you noted in, in another article that generally males out number voting for these uh, parties by around two to one. And this obviously goes up and down depending on the case studies. I remember when I was working in the Netherlands looking at the um, Forum for Democracy and it was in the 70s, 75% or something like that were were male voters, which um, intrigued the students there as well. Um, But but despite that, you you point out that women actually frequently we have similar attitudes to immigration and minorities uh, as men do, yet they don't vote in the same fashion as um, as, we, uh, as men do. C- could you explain what um, the literature, uh, how the literature had explained this? Because you know, I, I always pointed out, pointed this out to my students, but then I found before I read your article that there was no wholly convincing, coherent explanation for this. but um, So maybe you can outline what others have, have stated before you, you um, put forward your argument and then maybe give, give the outlines of your explanation.
0: Yes, I um, I'll I'll do my best and see see how far I get, and you can maybe fill me in if, if you have uh, some uh, additional explanations to to remind me of. Um, this is work that I did uh, together with, as you have mentioned, Elko Harteveld, who actually wrote his PhD dissertation entirely on uh, why um, uh, men vote more often uh, for the far right than than women. So. Um, but typically, and this is one, and it's true exactly what you're saying, that uh, this is, if you look at uh, sociodemographic uh, differences or social differences in, in the vote, there are two things that stand out with the far right. And one is that there's a very consistent gender gap um, everywhere, almost all the time, very rarely that we don't see it uh, in, uh, in that more women, more men than women vote for the far right. And, um. We also, the other gap that is very consistent is the education gap. So people with uh, higher uh, education degrees tend to a much lesser extent to vote for the far right, whereas uh, people who have not uh, uh, higher degrees in education, they tend to be more likely to vote for the far right. Although in both groups, uh, a lot more people don't vote for the far right, and that should be said about men as well that most men do not vote. So just to remember that. Um, But why why this uh, uh, gender gap? Um, I found that a lot of the explanations that had been advanced so far focused uh, on uh, some aspect of how the conditions of men had changed. So it explained basically uh, the reasons why um, men felt a need to vote for uh, a, a nativist uh, alternative, so that could be uh, things like competition in the labor market, uh, that uh, more uh, men would have the types of jobs that, through competition, either internationalization or direct competition with immigrants, would be more exposed and threatened by uh, by immigrants. And I always found that argument a bit of a stretch because a lot of women also work in, um, uh, in labor market positions where uh, they're facing competition uh, from uh, for immigrant workers. Uh, so there might be something to it. To the extent in Scandinavia, we see that a lot of um, um, men work in, uh, there's a gender gap in that uh, men tend to work in uh, more often in the private sector and women tend to work more often in, in the public sector. And so public sector jobs are typically thought to be more protected against competitive uh, um, pressures than uh, private sector jobs. And so that could be, you know, a part of the explanation and, and, uh, and so forth. So uh, there are these types of explanations that that do make sense uh, to a certain extent. And then, uh, of course, uh, a series of explanations that focus on status loss so that uh, because of uh, the fight for increased gender equality that have happened across the countries that I study in Western Europe and also in North America, um, and the uh, and how that has been quite successful, even if not finished, the um, the uh, men as a group have experienced a status loss relative to women and that a status loss is typically associated with a grievance, that a feeling that something is going against you and that this could be one of the things that uh, as it may, uh, made it more likely that men would be voting for the far right than women. Um all of these explanations are you know, plausible, but we never really found, uh, we, we didn't understand that, we tried in uh, all of our work to uh, set this up and to to test it empirically with the data that we had. And whenever we did that, it is, as I said, you know, it explains a bit, like it explains a bit of the the gender gap in voting for the far right, but there always remains this gender gap. (laughs) Like we never were able to like fully account for it. So it's not that these things don't matter at all, but it's just that they're not sufficient in themselves to explain what's going on. So this is when and um, elko contacted me and said well i think this idea that you have about uh, motivation to control prejudice we had published a paper on that um is very promising um uh, have you studied the gender pattern in those kinds of motivations and uh, and i said uh, yes um i have and in fact it's one of the uh, you know I, I study a lot of public opinion and it's one of these um um measures that I've, uh, or measures of opinion that I've seen, uh, is where I see the largest gap between men and women. So men and women typically, uh, record a much stronger motivation to control prejudice than men. Uh, it's also highly related to education, but, but the gender was sort of, and I said, well, uh, Elko, isn't that because, you know, uh, women are um, uh, just more open to immigration and more empathetic. And that's just explains all of it. And, and he said, well, no, but I have looked at this data across Europe about immigration preferences. And immigration preferences are oftentimes, but they vary across countries. Like sometimes there is a gender gap that uh, men are more opposed to immigrate immigrants than, than women. And, but other times, you know, women are most opposed. So and sometimes there's no difference at all. So and the, certainly the consistency of the patterns when you look at preferences over immigration is not there in order to be capable of explaining the consistency of the gender gap in voting. So something else must be going on. Um, and um, and so this is uh, when I said, well, let's try. It. You know, we have the data. Let's see what happens. And and uh, I can very well remember the first we sat down to do this and we we did we had a, a, it's a regression analysis and the dependent variable is vote for the far right and then you add uh gender or sex as it is whether people are a, a man or a woman and and then you see this gender gap which turns up as a uh, what we would say a negative coefficient for women so they're less likely to vote for the far right and then what you do is you add these measures and typically we would add and add and add and add and the gender gap would remain. It would still be there. Like the negative thing wouldn't go away. And so, but here we we did that and we included the gender uh, variable. And then we included the measure for motivation to control prejudice. And boom, the uh, gender gap was explained. It just went away. So, and it's the first and time I've seen it. And so far the only time I've seen that. And that any one sort of attitudinal variable can account for uh, the gender gap, like that. So we we did that first in one uh, country data set that we had, and then we were able to gather. I think this is for three, four countries or something like that where we had all these measures, uh, and in every country we found the same thing. So so then we wrote that up as a as an article where we say, we really need to uh, we really need to start to think more deeply about this motivation to control prejudice as. A driving force in uh, explaining differences in, in, in the far right. Well, we did find some comparative, some differences between countries in in uh, the gender gap, and we found that that seemed to be, or we thought, we hypothesized in that paper, and and that's still sort of up for grabs for people to find out more about and write about. Is, is that the more extreme the radical right is, um, the more likely the gender gap is to be accounted for by this motivation to control prejudice measure. So uh, for very, for moderating or very moderate uh, uh, parties opposing immigration, the uh, there could be gender gaps, but they could perhaps be for other reasons. And and we don't think the motivation to control prejudice measure necessarily um, uh, explains those, but we think it's best at explaining gender gaps for the most extreme um, parties
1: yeah so i i found this fascinating and very plausible but it, it's something that you know goes towards psychology um and and it's a brilliant insight to come um to bring in but and and it it also kind of confirms something i remember reading kasmuda you know having these big euro um poll kind of these euro polls showing that you know sixty percent of people are quite hostile towards certain types of immigration. And, you know, yes, only 15%, or, uh, perhaps 10% vote for these parties. So what is it that stops many citizens from voting for these uh, parties, you know, you, in an earlier article that you penned with Scott Linder and Robert Fort, you, you refer to this as striving to act in accordance with the better, better angel of their natures, uh, which is a brilliant quote and i think captures very uh simply what is a complicated concept can you explain how people stop themselves voting for these uh parties
0: hmm. yeah so uh, that was a very uh, and it's still a very fun collaboration that i've had with Scott Blinder and Robert Ford, and um, it was Scott Blinder who brought in this idea of the internal motivation to control prejudice that he'd been working with at the University of Chicago back in the day when he did his PhD there, Um, and um, on the work of somebody named Tali Mendelberg, who's written a wonderful book called The Race Cart. And the reason immediately why I thought oh, this insight from social psychology is relevant to the far right that I'm sitting there studying these parties and the reputational shields and all, is that, um, so here is a theoretical framework that says the following. Um, Outgroup bias. So in psychology, they talk about in-groups and out-groups. And in-groups is sort of those people that you identify with, and out-groups are like the others that your in-group isn't part of. And it's a separate question why these groups are formed, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, immigrants tend to be an outgroup. And oftentimes, and, and it's a natural process that uh, the, or a natural process, it's just so common that you develop biases against outgroups. And it happens on what psychologists refer to as an automatic level. It means it never enters your consciousness. So this, you um, uh, Negative reactions that one might have towards uh, people in an out group can be um, very, very hard to uh, get rid of, basically. Um, And I've, it's so there are studies now that show that it's possible with really, really hard and diligent work, maybe to disassociate this kind of negative uh, stereotypes with certain out groups. But for the, for my purposes as a political scientist, uh, I can kind of assume that people in an in-group are negatively biased on an automatic level towards an out-group. So that's my starting point. And that means that I look at the world and I expect a lot of negative things to happen. And so to me, whenever something negative doesn't happen, it's a surprise and something that needs to be explained. Uh, you may say that's a pessimistic outlook, but it's been one that I, I found very productive in this particular area of research. And so, um, here comes the motivation to control prejudice. So the argument is that these social psychological processes, uh, in-group out-group bias, etc., they date back as long as human history, and they're still with us. What has changed? is that we as uh, groups and societies and individuals have started uh, and developed culturally in such a way that we have come to think many of us that being prejudiced which is negative bias basically is is wrong and so in our conscious awareness in our heads in our we might actually we think we we try we, we can be strongly motivated to try to not act on any negative biases that we may, you know, feel or somehow appear in in us when confronted with an outgroup. So my uh, the work that we've done is, uh, sort of begins from that insight and says, um, what really varies between individuals isn't whether they have some sort of negative bias or not. We just assume everybody does, basically. Um, What varies is how strongly motivated they are not to act on them. And from that follows two types of insights. First is that um, this motivation to control prejudice is internal, like it's for real. It's not something that you, it's not political correctness. It's not something that you do because you feel an obligation because others might view you. And and so you kind of basically lie about what you think. No, no, it's for real. It's just that it's very, very hard to treat others without prejudice. So um, even people who really are motivated and try will not always make it. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is it works, you know? So, So a lot of the time, people who are motivated to control prejudice will behave very differently from people who are not motivated to control prejudice. And, um, but not perfectly, because there's a lot of imperfection <laughs> in, in how we you know, apply our motivations to situations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this then becomes the sort of deeper insights about what the reputational shields actually do, can do, which is um, confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> which is not a great thing. So, uh, because in order for you or, or us to apply um, our selves, our motivations to a problem, uh, that c- requires effort, um, and it that means we need to sort of turn something on. I mean, something needs to be activated. Or for something to be activated, we need to realize that you know we're in a situation where we might make a prejudice. You know, decision. And so uh, the idea is that um, when that signal is very clear, as it might be with, say, here comes a neo Nazi party trying to uh, stand for election, then only those people who really do not care, uh, who are not motivated to control prejudice at all, will consider voting for them in order to further their agenda against immigrants. Yeah. And maybe not even them. But then you have other types of organizations. So the ones that are single-mindedly focused on um, on, and speak very negatively of foreigners and immigrants, et cetera, tend in most people to elicit some suspicion that that their agenda somehow is driven by prejudice and that they should be careful uh, about not voting for it. So, but then when you have parties that say, well, we're a fully fledged political party, um, we happen to think that it's very important to restrict immigration, and, and you know, and 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 those types of parties, they don't, to the same extent, activate this um, motivation to control prejudice. Is what we um, we have seen. So um, it's a complicated argument, but what I like about it is is I think it's sort of sound on many different levels, both the sort of in, within individual, as I think is based on on what I think are the soundest uh social psychological models we have at present time they're still but just models and likely to be wrong in any number of ways but uh, so that on that sense and and i think it also fundamentally is a um sound analysis of of the history of how we've developed uh in terms of the norms uh we now hold that uh, that we didn't use to to hold uh most of us um uh, in
1: society today. Yeah, um, Leo Luxen talks about a kind of ethical revolution having taken place in, you know, post-Holocaust and 60s, and, and, but that also maybe uh, raises the issue that this could also start to disappear if, um, you know, there there's a the backlash a bit like you know, Engelhardt and Norris talk about this cultural backlash and stuff. So it's, um, it, it's, it's not static, as you say, it's, it's ever changing, but why is it that men are significantly less motivated to control that prejudice than women?
0: Well, the honest answer to that is that we don't know. Uh, and, and, in our paper, we only speculate about it. So the only thing I know for sure is that men are less motivated to control progism. So that I've seen uh, time and time again, and I'm probably one of the people in the world who's looked the most at this measure and how it sort of relates to various things. So there's a very consistent relationship there. Um, and and why that is, is um, um, we, I think we speculate about it in, in our uh, paper. And when we do uh, speculate about it, we say that um, we think, uh, or the way I would put it today, is that I think it probably is related to uh, to power and power hierarchies. So um, I think uh, for men who've uh, traditionally been at the top of the power hierarchies, one of the things that being powerful does to you is that you don't have to worry about prejudice. So um, it, you don't feel it and experience it as much. And um, therefore, you're more oblivious to the fact that it exists and the harm that it does. And so for uh, more women, uh, although a lot of women are becoming more powerful today, but more women have the experience of um, or are women as a group are lower on that social hierarchy than men are. And so more women on average will have experienced uh, some form of prejudice or discrimination or other such things that uh, and they uh, typically one of the uh, the things uh, the the experiences of being less powerful is um, uh, that you learn a lot more about these things uh, and have to be more are, are made to be more aware of them uh, and the consequences that flow from it then um than men uh, than those who are more powerful so um that would be one way to so if societies became more much more equal so that your uh gender didn't determine your position in how likely you were to be in a position of power uh, i think women become as oblivious as as <laughs> the average woman become as oblivious <laughs> as the average men is today if you didn't have to go through this experience of um of being um um lower in the in the hierarchy so so that from that i that's my i think if i had to put my money on a hypothesis as to why it is that women are more strongly motivated to control prejudice is is that that might be uh, the reason why it is just a a, um, a larger awareness and a um of both uh, what of the occurrence of prejudice but also the harms that it does
1: mm. yeah this is really complicated um complicated. because you know, when you're saying that, I'm also thinking. Well, you know, would lower educated people in society not have more experience of being discriminated against, and therefore have more empathy? Yes, we often see that those with uh, much less education are more likely to vote, uh, at least males at least, um, for these parties. So it it is um, it, it's really challenging to come up with this, but it's, these are incredible, incredibly valuable questions that I hope maybe people listening to the podcast will, will try, will strive to answer. Um, You mentioned there that, you know, if there is in increased gender equality, that this could lead to um, increased gender equality of voters for these parties as well, because you talk about how they can these parties can potentially experience a feminization of their electorates if they make a credible effort to distance themselves from extremism and racism and, and prejudice and discrimination do do you see that happening you know i i think in one in in the two thousand and sixteen article we mentioned you talk about the the norwegian um party that it it is not um the vote the the issues don't seem to be um Divided on gender terms to the same extent as, let's say, the British National Party that you mentioned. Mm.
0: Um, I think what we say, or at least what we should say, is that uh, gender divisions have different reasons in this because there are actually uh, gender differences. So the original case is not a good example of a party that has, uh, you know, uh, become more moderate and therefore has received um, or um, augmented their share of voters among women because. Um, And there are many reasons why, but the package of policies that the um, uh, Norwegian far right offers is uh, very has additional sort of uh, additionally related to other issues that also have gender gaps and. So that is, they've mobilized very strongly against road toll taxes and against uh, climate, uh, various sort of interventions uh, in favor of of climate and oil drilling. And that's a big issue in Norway uh, because a lot of the national wealth comes from uh, oil drilling. And uh, and the uh, people who work in that sector, which is a large sector in our country, um, are predominantly men. So so there's that. And we know that issues that have to do with restricting cars also have a gender uh, gap difference uh, so that uh, men tend to be more posed than women. Um, And then in addition, they have a um, quite right wing agenda on taxes that tend to attract some um, uh, independent business, uh, like more disproportionately um, um uh, business owners and um and people uh, who uh, don't want to pay taxes in various ways and they there's also a, a gender gap in that sector so they are really kind of specialized <laughs> in issues that tend to uh, uh in at least in the Norwegian Scandinavian context uh be there so but our argument goes more to maybe uh, speaks more to the French situation now where um um we see that uh, Marine Le Pen has been trying to take the party in a more moderate direction, and also through this uh, program of de uh, that she's doing, which is uh, which is uh, basically what there's a way that she has of saying that she wants to distance the party more clearly from uh, the traditional right extreme ideologies. Um, uh, focusing on anti-semitism etc uh, that her father didn't do and so uh that's one it might not be sufficient moderation on that in order to uh to and then also the party does have that very that history that i tend to emphasize which i think will uh, serve as a break on on a broader appeal um but but we do think that um parties with a broader appeal and more moderate stances on uh, immigration to the extent that they can escape this uh, very strong signal that they're the party of prejudice and extremism um, will uh, stand a chance of of attracting more women precisely because of Elko's observation, which is that uh, there isn't a consistent gender gap on uh, immigration attitudes. So women are not necessarily... Uh, have, don't necessarily have very, very liberal preferences towards immigration uh, and not certainly not more so than, than men consistently across.
1: Okay, thanks, Elizabeth. Last question, and this takes us back a bit to the, your doctoral work that you mentioned early, er, earlier in Oxford, that in around 2005 you noted that anti-immigration parties quote, fail to experience sustained success in Britain, Germany, Sweden, Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Finland, Wallonia, and the Netherlands. And as we know, uh, in the 16 years since, many of these countries have seen anti-immigration parties gain considerable success, influence, and and been consistently successful. Um, Do you think this trend is set to continue? And, and maybe a sub-question for our Irish listeners, since I, I, I'm based in Ireland, and this is a continuous conversation I have with my students, is that it, is it inevitable that there will be a prominent and successful anti-immigration party here?
0: It's very hard to know exactly what our societies will look like a long time from now. But just speaking of this present moment, I think that uh, the uh, what we see so far is that uh countries that become popular destinations of immigration um and especially when they become increasingly popular uh that that tends to uh create some sort of propitious breeding ground for nativist mobilization over time actually we see that uh the experience of having people with immigrant background in society, and especially those who have very close experiences with that, uh, they, you know, they they often tend to become a bit more uh, open-minded or liberal in questions of, of of immigration. So you know, there's a slow trend going on, but then there's this uh, immediate reaction. We saw it. Uh, we actually just published a paper about reactions to the what um, we often called the European refugee crisis, but it actually was when a lot of people from the ongoing refugee crisis in Syria and elsewhere came to Europe uh, in this brief moment in time in 2015 and 2016 in, in large numbers. And that uh, elicited a, uh, in, in, in our study uh, a very strong reaction in the receiving population Against immigration, and um, and it lasted for that's the, uh, the contribution. To this article we measure how long it lasted. It lasted for about two years, um, but then it reverted to baseline, and now it's kind of uh, back there. So, so these kinds of bursts of nativism uh, connected to immigration is um, quite likely. But when I said back then that you know there are all these countries where this has happened, so there has been they have become quite popular immigration destinations or you haven't seen a far-right party really rise at that point, moment in time, you hadn't. And I pointed out that that wasn't because of the structural things not being present in society and the same, similar types of events. It had more to do with the types of parties that had tried to mobilize, that either they were far-right extremists and with Nazi legacies, or that they were very badly organized and very uh, single-minded. And that, uh, but, you know, if parties managed to get, uh, if if that certain parties could, in these contexts also, uh, most likely break through the same way that they had, because attitudes looked similar, conditions looked similar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The question about Ireland is the extent to which this sort of everything is similar really holds. Because one argument that I've noted, people have made about Ireland, I don't know what you think about it, is, is um, uh, that The strong uh, identity cleavage already around uh, religion is uh, uh, internally as a domestic issue, sort of structures and and mobilizes that um, politics so much and to such an extent that the scope for an additional nativist mobilization in Ireland might be narrower um, than in other types of countries where typically uh, mobilization for a long political mobilization for a long time had happened around economic issues, left right, this kind of functional interest type of things, and that immigration became the sort of catalyst for all kinds of things that has to do with uh, identity, community, religion, etc. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me, uh, but I think that's an interesting observation about Ireland nevertheless.
1: Thanks so much for today. Thanks for taking the time out. I found your work fascinating to read and I hope that many of our listeners will will go out and seek your work, a lot of which is uh, available in open access. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhub.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie.